Welcome into the Wednesday Bible study. We are, we couldn't be more excited about getting back into the Word of God today. Uh, after taking a week off last week, hopefully uh, a lot of you took that opportunity to go into the just hours and hours and hours of archives uh, that we have available for you. If you ever you know want to go back and catch some of the other series that we've done here in this Wednesday Bible study, you can go to themanchurch.com, and there's a media button there. Click on that, and then a little drop-down menu. Listen to me at 58, hipping it up, talking about drop-down menus. Uh, and you either click you want to listen to it. Those are audio-only archives. Or if you want to watch the archives, you just click watch. So in all of the years of us being in this Wednesday Bible study, those archives and those series are there, including some standalone uh, messages that we've done, like in-between series. Uh, they're always available to you. Uh, so, But right now, we're going to get back on board. This is a brand-new one this week. Uh, we're doing this live um, and we're doing it on uh, July the 12th. So we'll be in Revelation uh, chapter 14. We're going to finish 14 today. It'll be beginning in verse 14 and then going through verse 20. So if you want to go ahead and turn to that, you can, and we'll get ready to go. Uh, some things you need to know, this Wednesday Bible study uh, comes to you from the studios of the Rick and Bubba Show. If you're not familiar with that show, that's my day job. I'm the co-host. You can find that uh, at rickandbubba.com. Uh, it's also this Bible study's live on the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel at noon central, 1 o'clock Eastern on Wednesday. Some of you are watching now, and so welcome. If not, know that you can do that. Uh, and then we archive it soon after, and Adler, uh, Chris Adler, who's our producer, he uh, he makes those available to you, audio and video, and you can find those where I just told you. Uh, all right, so some things you need to know. TheManChurch.com, I know that fall is approaching. Uh, and I know that churches, or most of them, you kind of operate your year kind of like schools do, and fall really is the beginning of your year. So if you're looking to say, we've been putting off, um, you know, putting together a real strategy to reach and disciple the men of our church and our community, let us help you. Go to themanchurch.com. That's why God uh, told us to do this. Uh, we have a full strategy for you. This is a turnkey strategy, meaning if you're a pastor or you're a leader in the church, you go to our website. We'll help you with any questions that aren't answered there. And it's turnkey, and your men are set up to be challenged and discipled for an entire year. And and right now, if we you just use the resources we had right now, we could have that handled for you for four years. And, of course, we're going to have a fifth year and all that. So, so if you'd like to find out more about that uh, and see all of our 40-week curricula, we have four of those. We'll have more as time goes on, Lord willing. Find those at themanchurch.com. If you, as you walk through there, you'll see an explanation video of every one of the curriculum uh, telling you the topic, how it works. Um, you should be able to go through that website and find out everything you need to know and then get the curriculum that you so desire. Then if you need speakers for us to send to you for your gatherings, we can do that too. Uh, and then we'll have another conversation if you need that, or you can provide the speakers yourself. So anyway, that's all there at themanchurch.com. Now, speaking uh, on some of the events that we do in services, let me hit a couple of those for you in markets where you may be. This Sunday night, July the 16th, uh, Landmark Church in Montgomery, Alabama. They've been doing our strategy. I'll be there speaking to the men at their next gathering. That's the high challenge part of our strategy. Then they'll go back into the curriculum out of that service. So I'll be there on Sunday night, Lord willing. And then on July the 22nd, uh, Crestview, Florida, First Baptist Church, this will be a breakfast for their men. Andrew Varbudis from our team will be speaking there. Uh, in Crestview, Florida, on the 29th of July, 
We've got a church that's been doing it a couple of years in First Baptist. Now we've got a church that's starting it for the first time. That's Emmanuel Baptist Church in Crestview, Florida, and Blake Prime will be there on the 28th of July. Now, if you are, are looking to attend a conference, Austin, Texas, uh, I'll be going to Austin, Texas for uh, their men's conference at City Reach Church in Austin, Texas. I will be eating at Rudy's, uh, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to speaking there on August the 4th, uh, Lord willing. And then on August the 6th, uh, First Baptist Church, Starkville, Mississippi, uh, Scott Garoski from our team will be speaking to those men as they roll through the strategy there. So there's others. You can find those by going to themanchurch.com under events. So let's pray, and let's jump into the Revelation chapter 14. Lord, thank you for today. May we glean from it what you intend. Help us, Lord, to hear uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help me to teach correctly. Uh, help us to hear it correctly, to discern correctly, and apply it to whatever application uh, you desire for each individual hearing and seeing this today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So what happens now, we've, we've been walking through 14 for the last two weeks, and now we'll, we'll, we'll do a third week. Um, and, and what we've been watching, um, let, let's right now do this. Let, let's take our Bible, hold, hold uh, Revelation 14, okay? And, and let's go over to the powerful letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul writing to the, the the church at Philippi, and you know this is a powerful, powerful uh, letter because Paul, as as you know, uh, finds himself in jail, uh, and and you don't really find Paul complaining a lot while he's in jail. Uh, you you hear him really talking about the opportunity that his discomfort has has given him. A great example to us, by the way. But let's go to chapter two in this in this beautiful letter, and let's look at verses six through eight. It may be familiar to you, but it's important because it's going to set up what John's about to see here. So even if it's familiar to you, don't turn it off. Listen to what Paul is saying. He says, um, "Let's start with five first. Have this mind among yourselves." Okay, so that's supposed to be applied to us, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now he's referencing Jesus. This is important. Listen to six. So here's what he says about Christ Jesus. Who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right, so why is that important with Revelation 14? It's extremely important because what, what, what Jesus has already done, this taking on human form, humbling himself, suffering, obedient to the cross, that's about to be over. He, he's not that anymore. Okay, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. I remember when I look back at the trip to France, and and I had a wonderful time. It was a great trip, much needed. As I said on the on my day job, the Rick and Bubba show, never ever ever apologize or feel guilty by an investment of time or money into your marriage. If you're married, 
an investment in your marriage is worth the time and it's always worth the money. It is an investment of both well, well spent. And that's all that trip was. We, Sherry and I do a lot of mission trips, love them. Uh, Sherry had come from Israel, so she had been working there with some women. Uh, we love to travel with our family. We've done that. We, we, we take the responsibility of our aging parents very serious, take my job very serious. And, and all those things have been wonderful experiences, and I'm thankful for all of them. But this was designed for relaxation and rejuvenation and the connection of a husband and wife because all these other people and all this other ministry that we've been called to, we're no good to any of it if we lose the relationship that is unique against all other relationships in the family, in the house, and in society, and even in the church, and that is that relationship between husband and wife. If that's not healthy, the rest of it's not going to work. And you, can, you can't be what you need to be to the other people depending on you. Okay? So anyway, that's what this was about. But one of the things, you know, when you travel, especially to Europe, you know, being Americans, if I want to show you something old, 247 years is all I can give you. Okay? But over there, it's, it's 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, thousands of years old. Well, what does everybody want you to see? you got to go see the basilicas. you got to see these beautiful churches and go see all this art. And, it, and it's, it's fabulous. It's beautiful. It's, but let me tell you what it's not. It ain't full of the Holy Spirit. It's dead as it can be. And you know what you notice in these places? Sherry brought this up. She said, where's the victory? They're gloomy. Every depiction of Christ, he's laying there dead. Uh, or he's still on the cross. And Sherry's like, "Where is there anything in here about the resurrection? Is it, do you see anything in here that, that celebrates the resurrection? And you really don't. I didn't feel the Holy Spirit there at all. Did I, was I impressed with the ability of human beings to build beautiful things? I was. Was I impressed with the, 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 the gifts of these artists? I certainly was. Did I feel close to God in there? I did not. Uh, and, and the reason why is we got to be careful that we don't keep Jesus in a moment that Satan thought he had victory because he thought he'd killed him and that God would lower himself to take on human flesh. But for us to keep him there is wrong as far as our worship. For us to be thankful is right. But for us to only depict that that is who he is now is incorrect. And, and, and so this is what we're going to be reminded of that John is going to see. Because the first time Jesus came as a servant, filled with humility, the second coming, we're going to see his majesty. We're going to see his splendor. The first time he came to seek and save the lost, praise God for that. And make a reference right here. Go read about that in Luke 19.10. Luke talks about this. The first time he came to seek and save the lost. Praise God for that. Of course, he called us to repentance. We seem to have forgotten that. But, 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 but he did. Hey, you know, Jesus hung out with sinners, and he called them to repentance. When Jesus left hanging out with sinners, they were changed. He was not. Okay? So take a note of that. So anyway, the second coming, unlike the first coming, which was to seek and save the lost, the second coming is to judge the living and the dead who didn't repent. 
Okay, and we're going to see that today. Second Timothy 4.1, nice reference there too. Hang on to that if you want to make a note on that. So he came the first time as the sower. He's sowing the seeds. What you're going to see now the second time he comes as the reaper. So run those down again. First time he came as a servant. First time he came with humility. Second time he came with majesty and splendor. First time he came to seek and save the lost. Second time he came to judge the living and the dead. Jesus came the first time as the sower. He comes the second time as the reaper. Okay? And we're about to see that second coming. Okay? So when we were looking in, in, in uh, chapter 14, we, we saw that, that verses 6 through 11, which we've already covered, they speak of the judgment. That's the first angel and the second angel. Uh, then, then there was a break in the one that we had before last week. The third angel in 12 and 13 is encouraging the saints who have refused to reject God to endure what was coming, and they're all going to be killed. Um, and now we're going to shift back, and we're going to go back to seeing the divine wrath. Uh, and, and this passage is going to give us two visions of a harvest. Now make a note, there's a reason they're different, okay? because I don't want you to miss this. Verses 14 through 16, which is where we're going to start, the harvest is going to be, the, the analogy is going to be a grain harvest. And there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that. Then when we get 17 through 20, you're going to still have a harvest. You're going to see a different person with the, with the sickle. And this harvest is going to be a grape harvest. And, and they're, both, they're both unique analogies, but they're not talking about the same thing. Some people have gotten this wrong and said, well, it looks like John's just giving us two examples of the same thing. He's not. And, and we're going to clarify that today, okay? So... They are not the they're not the same event. Uh, so here's what you you need to understand is the first grain harvest, which is where we're going to start. That's going to represent the seven bowl judgment that is going to destroy Babylon and the and the Antichrist Empire. Okay, and we're going to see those seven bowls when we get to chapter sixteen. Okay, this is John seeing. Here, here, here comes that seven bowl judgment, and I and I'm gonna tell you what that looks like in verses uh, 14 and and 15, okay, uh, or 14 through 16, and uh, and then when we get to 17 through 20, you're gonna see the Battle of Armageddon being represented. See, that's two different events, and that's the reason why there's two different analogies, and you'll see that come alive as we walk through that, okay, and uh, now both of them are going to feature both of these events, you're really going to see the same three topics. You're going to see who the reaper is. You're going to see what what is there's, – there's going to be an analogy about the rightness, and then there's going to be an analogy about the actual reaping itself. Okay, Both of them are going to have feature those three things, but they're going to be a little different. Okay, So let's get started in 14. Uh, then I look – and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. We're really going to unpack son of man today. With a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, what have we learned throughout this whole study of the Revelation? Anytime John writes down, then I looked and behold, that always tells us what? A new event is happening. 
That means he's not continuing what you heard before. I'm now getting to see something new. Everybody with me on that? That'll help you through your study of Revelation if you'll get that. Okay? So a new event. So he, he sees this white cloud. Now, this is not new to us. We, we, we've talked about white clouds. Uh, he, he sees white cloud. Now, if you have your Bible, hold Revelation um, 14, and then I want you to come over to Daniel. Okay? Now, remember, Daniel's always going to be running alongside the Revelation. L- look at Daniel, and let's go to chapter 7. And then I want you to join me in looking at 13 through 14. This is a this is a, a vision that Daniel sees. Now listen, I don't know about your Bible. I'm English Standard. I like to teach out the English stan- Standard. My Bible actually has the subtitle over this, The Son of Man is Given Dominion. I don't know if that's what y'all see, but that's what my Bible has. My Bible has. So th- you see that these are the these are the two vi- same visions. So Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. That's the son and the father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Does that sound familiar to what what John is seeing here? He he sees Jesus sitting on a cloud, and he describes describes him as one like a son of man. And Jesus, what what John is seeing, now I want you to think about how incredible this must have been for John. Because John is Jewish. John is familiar with the writings of Daniel. So John is looking up and he is seeing... Daniel's visual being fulfilled. He's seeing it. And so uh, when when he sees this, the white cloud always stands for his glory and his majesty. He's ready to take this dominion that Daniel was talking about. He is sitting. Why is, why is, why is it why would he be sitting? Why is he not standing? He's sitting waiting on the proper time to stand and begin the the reaping. He, he's he's waiting. So so this is speaking, of course, to the seven bold judgments, which will be followed by Christ's return to establish his kingdom. And Christ is described as one like a son of man. Now go back again to Daniel, Daniel seven. He's described as one like a son of uh, the a son of man. So when Daniel's talking about this in seven, um, in in thirteen, listen to what he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And then you see the exact same quote from John, one like a son of man. It it was, now this is what I didn't know, and I was reading some of the commentaries. If you look through the New Testament, when Jesus was in the incarnate form, meaning I'm 100% God, but I've now taken on 100% man, as far as that time period, okay, that's the key, as far as that time period, this was Jesus' favorite description of himself. I didn't know that. And, and if you listen to this list, when he, when he was in his incarnation, 
description of himself. He calls himself the Son of Man, Matthew 8, 20, Matthew 9, 6, the famous Matthew 24 that I've told all of us to study, verses 27 and 30, Mark 2.10, Mark 2.28, Mark 8.31, Mark 9.9, Luke 6.22, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 27, chapter 6, verse 27, uh, verse 62, and chapter 8, verse 28. It is his favorite description of himself while he's 100% man and 100% God. Now, what did Paul just tell us when we read Philippians? In chapter 2, 7 through 8, Paul says that when Jesus left his glory and lowered himself, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men, and found an appearance as a man. This is why Jesus keeps referring to himself when he's 100% God and 100% man, I am a son of man. What I've done is I've emptied myself of my glory. That's why he says he did. He could When Paul, I remember being confused when he says he didn't consider equality with God. What are you talking about? What he meant was he had access to be just 100% God, but he, he denied himself that. He wanted to take on human flesh to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience, and so he could be the final sacrifice. The final sacrifice had to be a perfect lamb, unblemished, which had to be a sinless man, and it had to be a perfect God. So remember, any other garbage out there that takes away the deity of Christ, you don't want anything to do with that theology because you've just lost your redemption. If he doesn't, if he doesn't complete the cross and complete the resurrection as 100% man and 100% God, we're all doomed. So don't let anybody take that away from Jesus. He certainly didn't take it away from himself. Okay? So, but this is, this is very significant. John calling him this title will be the last time we hear it. Why? Because it's over. It's over. He's returned to his glory. He's not a son of man anymore. He is only the son of God. And so it's important to, to make that note because everything is changing now. This means that he has completed everything he wants to complete and was sent to complete, the will of the Father. And the Father has now decided, you heard me reference this two weeks ago, the Father has decided that the age of grace in the church age is over. Go take possession of the earth again. All opportunities to repent, which there have been plenty, Remember, like I told the, the atheist I was debating in Nicaragua, I just can't believe in a God that would send people to hell. I said, you must not know the scriptures. We send ourselves to hell. I serve a God that was delivering us out of the hell we deserved, and some of us just said, no, thank you. So, so anyway, 
you see that he's going to take possession of the earth. And, and John describes him what as having a golden crown on his head. Now, this is interesting here. The crown that Jesus is wearing here and the word that John uses it is not diadema or diadema worn by kings, but it's Stephanus again, which we've learned this through the Revelation, these different crowns. This is a crown, but it does fit. We know he's the king of kings, so don't think that's being diminished. What he's saying is, I'm not wearing a crown like earthly kings wear. What he's doing is he's taking on that crown that was worn by victors in war, athletic events and things like that in Scripture. It is a crown of triumph. The reason why he doesn't have on his royal crown, he's got on the Stephanus crown, is he's about to win a war. And it ain't going to be close, by the way. To call it a war is a bit of a stretch. But uh, but but it, he's about to take back everything that, it, that was always his. Okay? So the Son of Man, in, in his identity, it, it no longer fits because he's now going to be the sovereign ruler. See, see that 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 you know when when you think about Son of Man, it works there. But as a triumphant conqueror and victory over all his enemies, he must put on the Stephanus crown, which means it is a crown of triumph, and he will destroy all his enemies. And guess where you can hear him talking about that to his disciples? Say it with me. Matthew 24, verse 30. He tells them about this. He has a sharp sickle in his hand. Anybody know what a sickle is? Do I have to tell you enough farmers in here? Everybody know what a sickle is? Those of you who don't know, it's long, curved, razor sharp, iron blade. It has a long broomstick, wooden handle. It's used to harvest grain. And I want you to, and if you go out with a sickle, guess what you do? You take that baby in both hands. And and uh, and and how about this? You sweep back and forth, and you get your legs under you, and you take those grain stalks and you bring them down to ground level. And that's what he sees the Lord Jesus about to do. But what does this symbolize that the Lord Jesus is doing? He is not mowing down grain. He is mowing down his enemies, like a harvester cutting down grain. So that's who the reaper is in this first part. Now let's look at the ripeness in verse 15. Important because it's going to be different in the second. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That's important. The first three uh, angels proclaim that judgment was coming. This fourth angel brings the command from the Father, because he's, he's, he's coming out of the temple, which we'll talk about. The Son of Man is sitting there. The Son is on the cloud. He's sitting. The angel comes out with a loud voice showing authority from God the Father and says to the Son, you've been hearing about what you need to do and what you're going to do, and let me tell you what the Father just told me to come tell you. Execute it. Let's go. It's on. Put your sickle in your hand, Lord, and reap. It's time to move to judgment. 
God's anger has reached its limit, guys. His wrath is poured out. Grace is over. No more delaying the harvest of judgment. The Son can now exercise the right to judge that the Father delegated to him. Now, where, how, why, how do we know that, that the Son uh, has been delegated this authority? Well, here's some verses. John, our study of John, which you can find in our archives. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 22. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 27. It's discussed also in Acts. Luke tells us about it in, in Acts 10, 42, and Acts 17, 31. Side note, if you missed our study on John and you missed our study on Acts, they're all there in the archives. So the ripeness here means the earth is ripe for judgment. Now, if you look at how this particular Greek is used here for ripe, it's really the Greek word that actually translates to dried up, withered, overripe, rotten. The earth has reached the point, God has decided, that there is no redeeming it. These people are rotten. They have rejected me and rejected me and rejected me, and the time has passed for any more opportunity. They're rotten. Let's remove them. A horrible thought for those that um, have continued to thumb their nose at God. The grain here has passed the point of any usefulness and is being gathered up for fire. This has been taught to us. Jesus told us about this, Matthew 13, 40. Matthew 13, 40. This is actually happening now. I don't know how many of you in here, because I know you do because you brought me some vegetables. I don't know how many of you here have ever done a garden before. But one of the problems that that we found having a farm 30 minutes from our house was, especially when our kids were smaller, we were so busy that many times we would get to the garden and it was too late. The stuff was no good. I mean, it, it had overriped. It was, couldn't be used for anything. That's what he's describing. All of this, none of this will be harvested for any use the only thing this is good for is throw it in the garbage or burn it. So take it down. So then the reaping starts in 16. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. One of the most tragic and sobering statements in all of Scripture but do you catch just how straightforward and simple it is? The execution of divine judgment is carried out. We'll see the details of this when we get to chapter 16, but what John sees is that it's happening, and we'll get more details on it in 16, and it's ugly. But think about just how straightforward it is. Jesus stands up takes the sickle, and just begins to, and no one survives. 
So then the next thing that takes place is what uh, is a grape harvest. This represents the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, it's a little more dramatic because we now get imagery. You know, you think of the sickle, even though that's pretty awful to think about just the cutting down, it's not near as gruesome sounding to me as the analogy of the wine press. That That's ugly, and, and, and you're going to see why. Um, the imagery of this wine press, um, let's, let's look at verse 17 first because we need to get the reaper first. Different reaper here. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. So now Jesus doesn't have the sickle anymore. An angel does. It's not the Son of Man. It's a fifth angel that came out of the temple. He also has a sharp sickle. Now, the reason that you'll see the reason of this, but here's one thing you need to know. We've seen this really throughout the judgments and the tribulation. The Son of Man will be assisted by holy angels in his final judgment. So this angel has been given the responsibility of the grape harvest, which is the Battle of Armageddon. And one of the reasons we see the angel with the sickle this time is where's Jesus going to be? He's sitting on that horse. He, he's, he's leading uh, the saints into the battle. So now an angel has, has, has the sickle. Uh, and uh, look at verse 18. Now a sixth angel comes out. I'm sorry, verse, uh, yeah, verse 18. All right, in verse 18, another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. You see, now it's a grape harvest. What 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 is this fire from the altar? Well, the, the angel, you know, it, this is not the first one uh, that that came from from standing at, in front of the throne of, of God. This one is is from the altar that's associated. Remember, we've covered this in our other studies in the Revelation with the prayers of the saints. This has been indicated. Uh, it's time for these prayers that the saints have been praying and all the smoke and all the prayers that are coming from this altar. It's now time for these saints who say, we want to be vindicated. Those prayers will now be answered, and the fire is always associated with intercession, and and this time it's going to be used for the destruction of all the enemies of God and God's people. So the enemies of God and the enemies of those with God, now this angel comes out and says, I got the fire from all these prayers that everybody's been praying, and it's going to be used on judgment. The prayer now will be fulfilled through the final judgment of Almighty God. And again, his voice is loud. His voice is urgent. He has authority, meaning that he can come out and he has the authority to say what he says. He has the authority to tell that angel, just like the other angel had the authority to tell Jesus. This angel says, I now have the authority from the Father to tell you, get the sickle rolling. Bring, bring in the clusters of the grapes. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. The grapes are ripe. Now, this is where it gets real specific. It sounds much more pleasant to say, go take your sickle and bring in these clusters of grapes until you realize why this analogy is being used. These clusters of grapes are unrepented sinners, and they are 
depicted as grape clusters being removed from earthly existence. Now, the ripe here is unlike the one that we saw for the grain harvest where they really were overripe and they were rotten. The word ripe here in Greek is used to mean that they're prime. They're they're perfectly ripe. But what are they perfectly ripe with? Wickedness. They're oozing wickedness. It is the juice of wickedness. And now the reaping will begin. Verses 19 through 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, or stadia. And we'll talk about what that measurement actually is. So they are gathered and they're flung into the wine press of God's wrath. Let me tell everybody listening and watching today and in this room, you do not want to be flung into the wine press of a holy God's perfect wrath. And you don't have to. This holy God can't change that he's holy. But he has offered us. We're not here yet. He loves us enough that he's even telling you this is coming. But it's also coming for you if your earthly body dies before the return of Christ and you haven't repented. Most of us won't make it to the great tribulation. Most of us will die before that. And I remember my brother who is so straightforward when we had the attack on 9-11 I remember so vividly he and I were talking, and he said these people went out into their day that day thinking it was just a normal, beautiful day. And he says for those people, it really doesn't matter when they rebuild the temple, does it? Because they met Jesus today. And I said that's a great point. All the prophecy in the world won't mean anything if you die today. Because you're going to meet him today. Prophecy will be fulfilled for you today, for me today. Have you ever have you ever saw somebody and thought you'd see him again? So what did Jesus say? Quit talking so much about what you're going to be doing in the next six months. Nothing wrong with planning, but he says you better say, Lord willing, that's what you'll do. Because you're not promised another minute. And um, so have you ever seen a wine press? Have you ever seen one? I've had the opportunity to see that, and even in Israel I saw them. So they're two stone basins, and they're connected by a trough. So what would happen is these grapes would be trampled in the upper basin, and then the juice would collect in the lower one. Now, the splattering of the grapes and the juice as they stomped vividly pictures. Y'all do know what this analogy is, right? The juice here, it's blood. And and the trotting is God's wrath producing a tremendous amount of blood. And um, those who will be destroyed 
the wine press will be trodden, notice he says, outside the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will be protected from the carnage of the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, What he's describing here is about 60 miles north, and guess where that's near? Mount Megiddo. I've had a chance to stand on Mount Megiddo and look out over where this is going to happen. Napoleon described it as the most beautiful, perfect battlefield he'd ever seen. And it will be. And when you look out at that incredibly large battlefield, it really blows your mind to think the Battle of Armageddon will be right there. If you've never had a chance to stand there, it is. uh, there's no way for you to stand there if you know these things and it not impact you. And, of course, I had the opportunity one time I was watching and one of the – Israeli fighter jets was coming down and it disappeared. I was like, what was that? And they said, oh, the Air Force is under the ground. Because, you know, if, if the Israelis put their planes out there in the open, I mean, I mean, the, their, their enemies try to bomb them all the time, so they actually keep their aircraft under the ground. They come in, drop down, and go underneath. And um, so it was, it was fascinating to stand there and see that. So that's what John is seeing here. That's where the battle's going to be. And see, there's going to be a new Jerusalem, so Jerusalem will not be part of the carnage. And then you start thinking about this analogy, which we'll hear about again when we get to the end of the Revelation. The blood will be as high as the horse's bridles. And this measurement here, this 1600, you see, and something that we as Americans would understand is John is saying that the carnage of the grape harvest, the blood will be as high as horses' bridles and as far as 200 miles. 200 miles of blood. As high as a horse's bridle. So... You go, where do we come up with this? Well, all the nations will gather against the Lord. That'll be millions of people. It will be a slaughter, not really a battle. It's over quick. As a matter of fact, uh, those that are with Christ really never even get in the battle. I mean, we're there with him, but we don't ever get to do anything because all we need is him. And he takes them out with a sword that comes from his mouth. And the thing about the angel's role in this is the angels, and this particular angel, is given the authority to cut the grapes. You know this depiction we have a lot of times of making God something easier to sin against? We make Jesus out to be a hippie, and we make God the Father out to be the big man upstairs, and the Holy Spirit's kind of that crazy cousin that's so wild and fun. And um, none of that's accurate. Because when you look at this loving God, and you're thankful that he offered us redemption, and you're thankful that he's willing to forgive those who repent, we're the ones that he has to change. We don't get to change him. 
And if you don't believe that there's that that sin always matters, and we've talked about that over and over and over in here, the angel may cut the grapes, but the Lord Jesus crushes them. The Lord Jesus crushes them. And he is going to crush all who don't repent. He's not going to say, I, I man, I just I think I, I don't know what's going on with me today, but I just feel like I'm going to drop my holiness today and I'm going to be a little more acceptable of this sin. It'll be fine. He can't change his character. He's holy. There's nothing. he. This has to happen. Sin can't be in, in the presence of, of, of a holy God. And so if, if you have not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then your blood is going to be for 200 miles as high as a horse's bridle when the King of kings and the Lord of lords crushes you. And that is going to happen. And if you die today without redemption, it'll happen to you today. So when you think about un regenerated humanity if you are part of the unregenerated human race your future is not good you face a frightening future the writer of hebrews says it best it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god it's a terrifying thing. But that's okay. It's okay. So, but but we're, this is not being held from us. You know, it, it's like like I, you know, had the guy called the show a few days ago and and this comes up from time to time. And I even had a guest on the show. I've told you all that story before, but it happened again recently. Well, what about what about people Rick that that don't know all this? You're t- you're saying we know, but but well, what about those people who don't know? Well, first of all, Scripture speaks pretty clear that uh, God's presence, and it's so obvious that he is who he is. But but that question is always kind of a pivot because I promise you whatever God does will be right. But where you got to get real careful is the guy just admitted that he knows. How can you use your theory that there's people that never know and what is God going to do about them when for you to even have the theory means you know? I'd be more concerned about the fact that you know than I would worrying about what people don't know. Now, if you would like to say that motivates me to tell people, praise God for that. And I kind of think that ought to be the motivation as opposed to sitting in the stand saying, there's people that don't know. Why don't you get up out of the bleachers and go tell them? Because that's what he told us to do, didn't he? Didn't he say, y'all know, go tell everybody about it? Teach them all that I've commanded? Why don't you teach them that I'm going to come and crush everybody who opposes me? Why don't you let them know that I went and paid the price that they should have paid? Why don't you let them know that I have redeemed them if they'll repent and leave their own authority and they'll place themselves under my authority? Why don't you go tell them that? As to sitting up in the stand saying, you don't think my game plan was very good because I used a bunch of flawed people that didn't get it done. You know, it goes back to the time you heard the guy I was telling you about, oh, you don't have to go to some third world country to reach people for Christ. You're right, so what are you doing here? 
You know, those people right across that highway, they, 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 that, that apartment complex. So what I told my kids, and I said, okay, so how did you plan to go reach the people at the apartment complex? What did you and your kids do? I'll tell you what they did. Nothing. It was a pivot. It was a deflection. Not to take responsibility for advancing the kingdom yourself. And you say, well, I don't know what to say. You can talk about how Jesus changed you, can't you? Amen. Is it, you can't find a Bible study. They're everywhere. There's one here every week. Well, I can't make that one. Can you watch it? Can you listen to it? Can you go to one? Are you are you involved in your church? Are you are not attended? Do you immerse yourself in the church? Yeah. It's he's those of us here. It's unbelievable. And if you don't think we can end up, I just came from a place that is secular and godless. The things that Sherry and I talked to about people there, they don't even know the basic. They don't. They the, the gospel has not been passed on. They don't even know what these things up that they that these artists have done. What it even represents. I heard one say. I remember my grandmother talking about that. So if you don't think this place can end up just like that, and it can, and it can tan, it, 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 it one or two ways: rejection of of the church, just rejection of it, or apathy. That's here, but. I've told you about uh, Jack. Who's just, God is using Jack in my life right now. He is teaching me so much through a man that I'm supposed to be teaching. This this freshness of his redemption, because he doesn't have any of the garbage of cultural Christianity. None of it. He didn't even know what I mean when I say that. He didn't know what the Lord's Supper meant. He didn't know why people were being baptized. He didn't know why people don't come to church every Sunday. He doesn't know why people piddle around during the message. He doesn't know why the pastor's rushing his message and not finishing it if he's run out of time. None of that makes sense to him. And some of it, I have to say, look, there's some practicality to some of it if you've got multiple services and all that. But but I understand he does find it odd that he said, I love this quote. He said, if the pastor's got something to say, why don't he finish it? Why does he leave it? If he prepared this and he's got stuff left on the page, finish it. I said, well, that may mess up the schedule, you know. And, uh, you know, we asked, and, and so, so anyway, it, I mean, and he's not trying to be a smart aleck like I am. He honestly does. He just wants answers to it. He doesn't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to him. When I told him that people sometimes only come to church once a month, he couldn't believe what I was saying. You know why? Because he, the, the gospel message has so changed him. And the grace that God has offered him has so changed him. He's so blown away by the gospel, he can't believe we're not still blown away by it. And that's a good question. And we ought to have an answer for it. Because what Jesus did for us, and if you don't believe it by listening to what John just saw, is a really, really big deal. And how it can get delegated to least important or number four on the list of what we find we prioritize because i'm telling you what this new believer is wondering about the the western church because that's all he's seen it's not this way everywhere what he's wondering is how it can mean so little to us how can anything be more important than this Isn't eternity tied to this? 
Turn, turn with me to the Psalms, and we'll, we'll close. Psalms chapter 2. So the Psalms chapter 2. You know, I think this is kind of cool because I'm doing the, one of those game plans right now. We're doing it at my local church where you read through the Bible in a year. And so I'm, I'm reading through the Bible again this year, sharing our and our together. And I noticed that because they try to work it out where you read, and this works better for me with the way I study, but, you know, you, you read uh, your assignment in the Old Testament, you read a psalm or part whatever they call it in the psalms, then you read something out of Proverbs, then you read something out of the New Testament. Y'all have seen these plans. They're really good. Well, I, I was typical me, as Sherry rolled her eyes. I'm like, are we starting over in the psalms again? And she was like, well, yeah, Rick. I mean, there's not enough psalms to carry us through an entire year. I said, well, I don't, why don't we just continue on with the rest of the Bible? Why are we going back and doing Psalms again? We've already done Psalms. She goes, so you don't want to go through Psalms a second time? She goes, you don't want to go through the Proverbs a second time? No, it's in there again because we probably need to read them over and over again, not just one time through. Of course, you know me. I'm practical. I thought it was a year of Bible study to go from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Now we're repeating. You know what I mean? And she goes, well, God forbid we repeat any of the Bible throughout the year. So anyway, so stupid me. But but anyway, um, so I'm reading the Psalms a lot this year. But listen to what the psalmist says in uh, the second Psalm, verse 12. Kiss the son, S-O-N, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Listen to this. Oh, man, if it's to put chills on you, something's wrong with you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? Kiss the son. Repent. Take refuge in the son. Yes, his wrath is coming, but it's easily kindled. How? By Repentance. Acknowledging that that you're thankful for what he did, and as he stands there ready to hand out his wrath on all who are unrepentant, you tell him, "I repent." It's almost like him sitting there with that sickle, and he's bringing it back, and you say, "Lord, please forgive me. I know that I deserve the wrath, but I know you offer grace to those who repent." In the minute we cry out to him with a true, sincere heart, forgive me. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I remember when I was redeemed, one of the things, I, the reason why it was, it was so real, I had uttered phrases before when I was younger and things I'd learned and, and somewhat understood it. But can I tell you when he truly redeemed me and my life was changed forever is when I admitted, I admitted that I knew that he loved me, but I admitted that I didn't love him. I just admitted it. And you know what I said? This is how gracious he is. Will you teach me to love you? Just teach me to love you. I don't want to be this man anymore. I acknowledge that you're better than what I've chosen. But I can't change me. What did Bill Searcy say? Everywhere I go, there I am. So 
I have to be changed so that when everywhere I go, there I am, I'm not a problem. And only you can do it. I didn't even know John 14, 15 when I said that. If you love me, you'll obey me. The reason why I didn't obey him is because I didn't love him. And the reason why I didn't love him is because I didn't know him. And the reason why I didn't know him is I had never truly repented and said, only you can change me. Kiss the son and his wrath is easily kindled. Blessed are those that when the wrath is coming can actually take refuge in him. Not wrath. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the the warning. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the love. Lord, we acknowledge that you are perfect and we are not. We acknowledge that, that you are willing to forgive all who repent. And I pray, Lord, today that either in this room or out there somewhere through this incredible technology that you allowed us to create, somebody today for the first time or maybe the first time they've ever meant it like I had to do will just say I know you love me but I know the wrath is coming on me because I don't love you and today maybe for the first time I understood this wrath that is coming and I want to kiss you I want to repent and take refuge in you I've messed my life up and only you can fix it And today I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I turn from that sin and I turn to take refuge in you so that your wrath will pass me by. If you've done that for the first time or the first time you've meant it, reach out to me, rick at burgessministries.com. I'll help you any way I can. Lord, thank you for today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Amen.